Well, hey, welcome, uh, Patrick. Uh, Dr. Patrick Conway is here with us to uh, talk about senior care and healthcare overall. Um, so, Patrick, where are you coming? To, where are you zooming in from? Uh, Boston. So, I'm in my office in Boston today, and uh, excited to be here. Thanks for having nice, me. Nice, nice. Well, why don't we just start off? Like, uh, um, our NABA Health team is very interested in just getting to know you. So, love to hear about you, your family, a little bit. Um, yeah and a little bit about uh, you know, your, your history. Yeah, so um, uh, born in Texas, uh, youngest of four. Um, uh, after undergrad, I was gonna do McKinsey Consulting, Teach for America, or Peace Corps, which made sense at the time. Nice. Uh, <laughs> did uh, McKinsey Healthcare Consulting, back from med school, trained as a pediatrician, uh, met my wife here in Boston at Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, and I've been a pediatric hospitalist ever since, so I still take care of kids in the hospital, usually with multiple chronic conditions. Uh, was in the provider systems a couple times at Cincinnati Children's, uh, was the White House Fellow in the Bush Administration, then Chief Medical Officer for Secretary Levitt, then went back to CMS and was Chief Medical Officer for Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services and ran the Innovation Center. And uh, Principal Deputy Acting Administrator CMS was the longest serving CMO in CMS That's history right. by a lot. Uh, and then CEO of Blue Cross North Carolina, and now here at Optum. So uh, four kids, uh, age five through about to be 13, and uh, mm -hmm. just love spending time with them and my wife, Heather. You know, Patrick, it's interesting, because I remember seeing you at a conference years ago, and you were talking to a physician group, and you had two of your kids with you, and, and they were like a little rambunctious, so you brought him on stage <laughs> to uh, finish the talk. It was so great. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. I used to yeah. say I wouldn't speak on weekends unless it was okay if I brought right. some kids along. So yeah, I, that's funny. That's totally true. That was great. Well, uh, since this is about senior care, um, we'd love to hear like if you have any memories about your. Um, most of us know senior care from our grandparents, but do you have any memories of your grandparents? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, family-wise, my uh, paternal grandfather, I actually never knew. Um, he left uh, when my dad was very young. And um, my dad actually was in an orphanage for a couple of years, uh, right after the Depression. Um, and then his mother got him back. Uh, and I, I was Grandma Mimi. Uh, she lived in California on an mm -hmm. avocado farm. Oh my uh, then my grandfather, uh, it's funny how life changes in generations very fast. My seven-year-old grandfather was put in a boat from Ireland. Uh, his mother had left and his father couldn't take care of him and told mm -hmm. to find his uncle in Chicago, literally at the age <laughs> of seven, um, which he did uh, and ended up in a farm in Northwest Indiana, which I used to work on as a kid. Uh, nice. Grandpa Hugh, which is my middle name. And then... Uh, my grandma Mildred on that side. So uh, yeah, I got a lot of uh, first generation relatives uh, into the US and um, uh, had a big impact on my life on sort of work ethic and how you think about um, caring for people and investing in people. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Well, so you're right at home in Boston then with uh, your- <laughs> Yeah, the Irish roots in Boston yeah. are good. That's right. You know, I actually the kind of, on that theme, I'm going to ask you a couple questions about, um, you know, this transition to value. 
Um, you've been a leader in this for decades. Um, and and I, re I do remember you speaking specifically and passionately about the transition to value. So help us understand how transitioning to value really helps the care of the senior. Yeah, so at the end of the day for me, uh, like I know for you and others, I go back to the individual, the patient, the senior, and what, whether it's my mother or your mother or mm -hmm. any senior, how do we orient around better quality and outcomes for her, an exceptional experience, and lower cost, affordability. Right. So like that's the key. And when you orient the financial incentives, it's, it's not the only thing. It's necessary, but not sufficient. So when we orient the financial incentives around value, quality experience, total cost of care, it then can unleash Nava Health or, and other providers of care to deliver on what we would want for our mother, our father, uh, people often cite mothers. We won't go yeah, there, but early mothers. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and my mother is a Medicare beneficiary uh, mm -hmm. who's 83 years old. She doesn't like me to cite her uh, age. So she's been in Medicare yeah. 18 years. Uh, and, um, you know, we want a care delivery system around her, around any senior, that it's about quality experience and affordability. And at the end of the day, that's what value-based care is. Yeah. Do you think, like, there's... There used to be a lot of skepticism around the ability to execute on the triple aim. Um, so better care for less. And a lot of providers are like, oh my gosh, you're asking us to do something that we're not even sure is possible. Well, yeah. How do you respond to that? I think the skepticism is going down. So you, you mentioned the history and I appreciate the kind words, I think team effort. Um, like when I started in the CMS Innovation Center, uh, in early 2013, you had 0% of Medicare payments and these advanced, these advanced value-based payment models on quality yeah. experience, total cost of care. You know, over a four-year time period, we were over 30%, over $200 billion in these arrangements and over mm -hmm. 200,000 signed provider agreements, uh, including with Nava Health, by the way, um, uh, for value-based yeah. care. Um, right. And the private sector has gone in the same direction. You know, when I was at Blue Cross North Carolina, we went from almost zero to over 50% of our arrangements being these advanced value-based arrangements. We just said, this is where we're going. So I, I think it's the trend across the public and private sector. And I think providers, doctors, hospital systems are seeing that you can demonstrate that better quality and lower cost. And it aligns with they, what, what they want to do, which is better care for patients and a better health system. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I do remember the alternative quality contracts in yeah. Boston, yep. Um, yep. which was, you know, it's kind of cited as the, almost like the birthplace of the yep. ACA and, the, and how um, payment reform took on. Um, I don't know if you have any comments about those early days. <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I mean, I know that I know those contracts well. So I think in the private sector, I also would cite the alternative quality contract in, in Boston as like a mm -hmm. And in the public sector, something called the physician group demonstration or the PGP physician group practice demonstration. Yeah. Uh, that I think is sort of the, the start of the ACO program, which now, you know, the Medicare ACO program, uh, you know, literally is caring for many, many millions of people across the nation. Um, but once again, when you start, you never know how these things are going to work. I mean, when we started, it was, you know, will people sign up? And now I yeah. think the, the thing I'll pivot to here too, I think we're in a next 
generation, both in the public and private sector. It's not a question of if this is the right direction, it's now, how do we do it best? How do we move to that next yeah. phase of higher risk, more coordinated care, you know, better results over time, you know, led by uh, entities across the system? Yeah, maybe you could make a couple comments on how you see that evolving. You know, we're going to get a new administration uh, very shortly. The ACA, which you were like a major uh, contributor and a proponent of, you know, improving the coverage, but yeah. it didn't always like um, decrease the costs, I guess. Uh, kind mm -hmm. of a, and, but through your efforts, it's really got uh, a lot of um, delivery systems on the path, right? Yeah. So maybe you could make a few comments on how you see the next administration um, playing in the in that field. Yeah, I think they will keep pushing. So, you know, I worked on value-based care in Republican Bush administration and then in Obama, I think, and then in the Trump administration, they did continue to push on value-based care. It was, you know, yeah. it's a true bipartisan effort. Uh, the Innovation mm -hmm. Center and CMS pushed to sort of higher risk, you know, um, uh, levels, which I would have done if I were there. Uh, things like uh, direct contracting, the new geographic model. I think a lot of these are really interesting, uh, sort of pushes forward. I think yeah. you'll see that in the next administration. I do think we'll see mandatory bundles uh, would be my guess in the next administration. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think we'll see a push for more uh, population-based payment models. Um, uh, I think you may see some models in the drug space. We'll see. That's always hard. I think we need more models in the drug space, um, mm -hmm. but you got to have the political will uh, to tackle that. If you, um, so, you know, I'm bullish, uh, if you will, on sort of what we're going to see in the next administration on pushing towards value. And I think the private sector, I mean, we're pushing in that direction as well. So the combination of efforts, I think, just means if you're a hospital, if you're a physician group, uh, yeah out in America, you know this is where the world is going. And so then how do you perform in this value-based world? Yeah, you know, um, so Nava Health was a large convener of the BPCI yeah. program, BPCI Advanced, right? So we're deep into that, but I'd love your perspective on kind of how you see total cost of care arrangements versus these episodic arrangements and you think it's we're going to pivot to one versus the other? You know, I, I do get asked this a lot. I think it's an and, and so I'll describe. So okay. I think you need population-based models to care for whole populations of people that are attributed. Um, I also think you need episodic models um, that are caring for co total cost of care, quality experience across that episode. So I'll give you some tangible examples. And a population-based model, people don't always think about this. You know, when I, when I did models in North Carolina with a Duke, a UNC, et cetera, yeah. it might capture 40, 50% of their cost, but then there was still, you know, 50, 60% that were in episodes outside of the attributed population. So mm -hmm. you, you do have to still worry about that, whether it's yeah. cancer or hip replacements or whatever the episodes are. And so that's where I think episodic comes in. And, you know, there's going to be places, and I know Navi Health does this, you're going to embed an episode model and a population-based model. That's so, right. Uh, United Healthcare or any payer has, you know, population mm -hmm. risk, and they deploy Nava Health uh, to manage the risk around an episode because that, mm -hmm. once again, goes back to better quality experience and lower total cost of care. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's, it's very interesting how um, you you frame that as an and, right? Because there are a lot that say, "Gosh, I'm a population-based, you know, total cost of care," which you know previously used to be called capitation. Um, yeah, yep. it's not really a, a good word anymore. <laughs> yeah, but uh, um, you know, it is interesting that so I'm I'm going to pivot to the kind of the delivery system. So at Optum, right? There's Optum Care, right? Yeah. And even though, even in Optum Care, there's still a lot of fee for service. Mm -hmm. So in U.S. healthcare, there still seems to be a mindset or a cultural about more is better. Mm -hmm. And there's seems to be like a fear of not getting enough care. Like, and and when you limit that or take away the non-value added care you know it causes a lot of abrasion both for providers and for you know patients and families so how do we how do we deal with these the fee-for-service mindset of i'm doing the right thing i'm giving a lot of care and try and move that forward yeah it's a great question i think we're shifting i mean i think even the medical profession with like abim choosing wisely and other things i think are yeah. highlighting that more is not necessarily better. In fact, mm -hmm. more sometimes causes safety events, worse quality, et cetera. And so yeah. knowing what is the right thing to do includes when to intervene and when not to intervene or not mm -hmm. test, et cetera. Um, and then I think we're seeing in these population-based models, there was a lot of, or capitated, uh, there was a lot of concern about quality going down or experience going down. Actually, in general, across the public and private fare models, quality and experience yeah. have actually increased even faster than costs have gone down. So I think mm -hmm. as you put in a coordinated care system, quality and experience get better. I mean, the fee-for-service system, the fragmentation is really painful for people. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah. You know, you're a adult or child with 12 chronic conditions and you've got no quarterback. Uh, you're a caregiver, uh, which I've been mm -hmm. uh, to my father who's passed away, um, mm -hmm. trying to coordinate across multiple, you know, physicians and teams. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think the more we can do to have a coordinated health system that centers around that individual and family, the better. And I think value-based care helps us do that. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, so in my practice, I did renal transplantation and, um, and did a lot of work with dialysis patients. Oh my gosh. When someone has chronic renal failure yeah. and, and you got, you know, the, the nephrologists, you've got the family docs, you got the internists, you got the surgeons. Um, it's it's just fragmented. And so some of those models are addressing that today. Yeah. No, it's a great example. I knew that clinical background. I mean, that's a great example of a population that if we coordinate the clinical care, there's a yeah. huge, which you know better than I, quality experience, improvement opportunity, and total cost of care uh, reduction opportunity. Where, where do you think uh, measurement is going when it comes to outcomes? Because um, the, yeah. a lot of providers, a lot of my friends, like docs, are like, wow, you're measuring so many things. You're putting a big burden on us. Uh, where do you think that needs to go? Yeah, this has been, um, it needs to go to less measures, more outcome measures, more collected as part of the workflow. It's been a frustration of mine. I mean, I was chief medical officer at CMS and like yeah. I talked about, we got to have less measures aligned with the private sector, et cetera. And we did some things to, to try to do that. The, uh, there's too many acronyms in DC, but yeah. the quality measures clearinghouse and national quality forum to try to yep. get, um, 
I don't think we've gotten to where we need to go yet. Cause I mean, I still practice. There's still data collection, which seems like for data collection's sake, as opposed to care yeah. uh, at times, there's still misaligned measures across the public and private sector. So we still have work to do there. I think clinicians are right. Um, you know, how do we measure a smaller number of more outcome oriented measures, including patient reported outcomes and have that be the focus as opposed to this like cacophony of, you know, hundreds of process measures or other things that aren't really moving the needle. Yes, yeah, certainly. And, um, you know, the, some of the STARS measures for the uh, Medicare Advantage, um, they've moved to patient reported outcomes, which are yeah. still a challenge, but it's a move in the right direction, it seems. Yeah, we did try to do that with the STARS program. I mean, you, always, you never get everything done you want, but you know, yeah. I think putting the, with a team of people putting STARS in place, I think it did move the Medicare market uh, to orient around quality experience. And now it's, how do you continue to evolve that measure set over time to be more meaningful? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm gonna ask a couple of questions around post-acute care. As you know, NABA Health is um, very, impactful around post-acute care. And we've seen firsthand what COVID has done in the nursing homes. Um, you know, I'm just really interested in your perspective on uh, nursing home quality, and then also what, what your perspective is on kind of why, why were we so unprepared in the nursing home industry for uh, this pandemic? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, try to be brief. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, at CMS, I had to oversee sort of quality standards for nursing homes as well. Yeah. Like most providers, there's a pretty large variance in terms of performance, including some real underperformance and sort of underinvested nursing mm -hmm. homes. And so I think this pandemic exposed that, unfortunately, yeah. in really uh, bad, negative ways for people. Um, you know, I give NAVA Health credit. I do think you obviously are working to get people to the right post-acute settings, including the mm -hmm. right nursing homes, meaning higher quality, you know, lower cost, you know, systems. Yep. Also getting people to home as quick as possible. You know, mm -hmm. people in general would rather be in their home if possible. So how do we get them home and have new yep. care modalities centered around them that keep them healthy and at home? If they go to a nursing home, how do we get them out as soon as possible? Um, I actually, sadly, uh, one of my uncles uh, had to go to a nursing home during this event and did get COVID and yeah. end up in the ICU. Luckily, did not pass away, but actually is now back in a nursing home and maybe for an extended period of time because of mm -hmm. the clinical events around the hospitalization. Yeah. Um, so really challenging issue, but I, I give NAVA Health credit how do we organize the post-acute care system so we have coordination from acute to post-acute to home? And that's really what we want for seniors. Yeah, and, and that care transition, uh, and we, you know, as, as clinicians, physicians, I mean, we always uh, were concerned with the handoffs and the handoffs from acute care to post-acute care nursing homes and then um, back to the community is such a, such a, important transition that it's hard to understand if they're you know getting all of their needs met as they hand up um, yep. you know i'm curious if you think there are certain things like you mentioned more care in the home um, is it are there things that we as 
care solutions and NaviHealth and Optum can invest in to really make rehab care more accessible for uh, seniors? I think so. I mean, it's too bad in these that we can't have more, like, I'll be interested in your thoughts too. You probably know more about it than I do, but um, <laughs> I, I do. Um, I think we'll evolve to a world over time where more and more care occurs in the home. So I was literally talking to a company this morning on sort of sensor technology and other things that, uh, you know, uh, can detect events in the home and help monitor yeah. people. We'll see. Um, you know, I think in-home care, including risk-based primary care, is on the rise. We've got mm -hmm. programs like Optum at Home that care for dual eligibles and are getting really positive results in terms That's of right. better quality experience, lower cost. Um, you know, actually, I don't quote this one very often, but I will. I still have a hypothesis of people that get hospitalized, and there's some data on this. There may be 30% still, that if you had a, a or more, if you had a better mm -hmm. home care system, you yeah. would not even hospitalize them. You would just deliver IV antibiotics in the home, right? And nursing care in the home. So this whole hospital at home concept, which we're working on at Optum with Nava Health right. and others. So I'm really uh, excited about these new models of care that will both prevent hospitalizations and then if hospitalizations occur, enable people have almost like a sniff at home type environment where you're having that level of care in the mm -hmm. home. I know you have you probably have a lot of nursing home industry folks to listen to this to. I'm not saying nursing homes won't exist. Uh, you know, no. it's, it's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying, you know, you continue to work on getting people to the right setting of care for the right period of time with the realization most people, that people I've interacted with over time, you know, yeah. if you get, get them home safely, that's what they want, but they want to be able to do it in a safe way. Yeah, it just seems, Patrick, that there's been a lot of um, advances in care at the home. You know, like seven years ago, 10 years ago, it wouldn't have really been possible. I mean, there weren't yeah. much, um, you know, electronic records. You wouldn't be able to yeah. have the type of technology that you have today. And so it really does seem, I did have actually one um, executive from the nursing home industry say, listen, I'll, a lot of members, patients, they don't necessarily want to go to the nursing home. They need to go there because of their, their yeah. needs, their care needs, right? Yeah. And the fact is, is that we don't have a system where we've been able to get the infrastructure to care for them adequately at home yet, right? Yeah. Look, I'll give you a real clinical example that happens almost, so I just do weekends in the hospital now. Yeah. But almost every weekend. There's a child with multiple chronic conditions. So a lot of kids I get to take care of have, you know, eight conditions. That's why they're seen in children's hospitals. Yeah. That gets hospitalized because on a weekend, we can't figure out how to deliver home care, like sophisticated home care. That's right. Um, you know, because these kids have G-tubes, you know, seizure disorder, you know, multiple conditions. Mm -hmm. That's not right. Like, it's not good for the family. Mm -hmm. It's not good for the health care system. You know, but we haven't solved, you know, on a Saturday, if there's a G-tube malfunction, you know, how do we get care in the home, uh, you know, sophisticated nurse, et cetera. And I'm not, look, some things will require yeah. hospitalization, some things yep. will require nursing homes, like I get it. Mm -hmm. um, but how do we have a system that cares for more and more things out in the community, in the home, you know, closer to where the patient is? Yeah. 
I always remember quoting that um, this was quite a while ago before, you know, value-based care was really even a thing, but yeah. it was like, why don't we think of patients when we're not, they're not right in front of us, you know, as a physician, yeah. Yeah. I think about you a lot because you're in my office, right? Totally. But to think about, and that's really what I think value-based care does is like, now yeah. I'm thinking about you when you're not in front of me and I want to make sure I'm addressing your needs when you're not sitting in my office. <laughs> yeah, no, no, totally right. I mean, most people's interactions are not with their doctor or clinician, right? They're all the yeah. rest of their life. And so I've thought about this a lot too. Look, I think I got reasonably good medical training, but it, it taught us how mm -hmm. to deal with the patient in front of you, which is critically important. So absolutely great. Yeah. What we, what then I had to learn after residency, at least in my case was, wait a second. And for me, it was at Cincinnati Children's. Yeah. Uh, it was really a, where I learned a lot of this. You know, how do I think about the whole population that's not in front of me? What about all the kids in our community that aren't here? Like, how do yeah. I think about driving better health for populations? How do I drill? This is a real example. We, and I didn't lead this work. I can't take credit for it. But, you know, decreasing preterm birth in the entire Cincinnati Children's area, we had 100% market share, literally. So it meant right. we got less fee-for-service admissions in the NICU. Like, that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, but you still did it because it was the right thing to do. It was the right population health outcome. And then you orient your contracts over time to reward mm -hmm. that. But, you That's know, right. how do you uh, really drive at those populations that aren't in front of you? This gets to health, sorry, to, this gets to health equity issues, too, by the way. Absolutely. Where, um, unless we do that, we're going to continue to have disparities in care in the U.S. Yeah, we should talk a little bit just about community care and the non-clinical factors that, um, you know, yeah. to poor health outcomes. Um, so I, I do remember when I think you proposed uh, the community health um, ACO um, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really started to focus on, this was a number of years ago, but you started yeah. to focus on the social determinants of health. I don't know if you have a perspective on the, the areas of social determinants. Yeah, it's essential. No, you're right. Sorry to We worked on accountable health communities when I was at CMI mm -hmm. and other things that really um, integrated the social determinants of health and drivers of health with physical care. I think physical, mental, social, and by the way, financial as well, because financial yeah. can have impacts. And then in social, and we did this when I was in North Carolina as well and continue to do an optum. And so determinants health and driver's health, as you know, a larger determinant of health care outcomes actually than all of the care delivery interventions we do. It's amazing, um, it's amazing when so, you think about that. You know, how do you reorient? We did some pretty interesting, we even did some survey research data when I was in North Carolina that I think is probably broadly applicable. We asked like doctors and clinicians, where would you invest the dollar? And they actually mm -hmm. invested over 90 cents in social driver's health. So things like food yeah. insecurity, transportation, housing, education. Um, and uh, when I was in North Carolina, this continues at Optum, like food insecurity has been a major focus. How do you invest mm -hmm. and make sure people have food and transportation, which prevents admissions and readmissions? Um, sorry, I go back to clinical stories too. Yeah. I, I, I had a kid in North Carolina, and this, will this, you know, this has happened to me repeatedly over the years, get admitted to the hospital for failure to thrive. And the reason is lack of food. Lack of food. So our health system spends, you know, $50,000 for a hospitalization, could have mm -hmm. fed that child for years. 
because we can't figure out how to solve for the social determinants of health. So, you know, this is a critical issue. I know NAVA Health works on this too, but how do we solve for uh, social determinants or drivers of health? The reason I use both terms, by the way, we did research on Republicans and Democrats. It's kind of interesting. Social determinants of health, people didn't really like, kind of sound like socialism. Drivers of health, like people were like, drivers of health, I get it. I'll put my money there. So we started using drivers of health. It hasn't really taken off yet. Most people use social determinants of health, but I I kind of use both because I'm trying to create a little uh, bipartisan uh, investment in drivers of health. Yeah, we, we started using non-clinical drivers of health, of poor health. I like that, too. Uh, I'll, I'll go with that. Clinical yeah. factors, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, do you think that there'd be, like, within, um, I guess, financial incentives? Because in some ways, this is because it's it. there's no financial, I mean, there's there's just poor financial incentives to address the, the some of these social determinants. Yeah, I mean... You know, I think uh, Mandy Cohen, who I worked with at CMS in the Obama administration, then was Secretary of Health in North Carolina. She had a Medicaid waiver that I worked on when I was at Blue Cross North Carolina that put $800 million plus into social determinants of health, non-clinical factors driving health. Um, (laughs) I think that's a sign you could see more of that. I think other states saw that. They witnessed it. You know, in the U.S. health system, international countries, as you know, invest in this at a at an international federal level, Scandinavian yeah. countries. There's, you could do that at a federal level in the U.S. That'll take political changes. Yeah. Um, if you don't do it at the federal level, then you can do it at the state level. That could be done through Medicaid waivers and other mechanisms. And then the private sector has a role too. So United Health Group, we're making major investments in housing, food, transportation, and I think we'll make even more over time across Optum and United Healthcare. Yeah, I think there's um, um, a number of solutions that are scaling, you know, under Optum and under your group, really, to address not only just behavioral health issues, but also the um, the social determinants. And and as yeah. you know, Nava Health invested in a company to that has navigators, non-clinical navigators, to reduce readmissions. Um, and we definitely are interested in scaling that. Um, yeah, definitely. And we'll it's always interesting, that. Patrick. What, what's that? Look forward to helping with that, I just said. Yeah, right. It's always interesting that it's almost like you know this is the right thing to do. It You know it's going to help patients, but you have to find a business model that will support it. And the readmissions reduction is, you know, take risk and readmission. So that's a business model that will support, you know, these yeah. No, that's exactly right. We often, you got to put the clinical intervention with the financial model support it, or the, yeah. when I say clinical intervention, intervention, clinical and non-clinical, the yeah. intervention with the financial uh, right. model support it. Totally agree. So I'm going to ask you a crystal, this just kind of wrap it, wrap it up, a crystal ball question. Um, so post-COVID, right, uh, as we yeah. kind of wind through COVID, we've seen a lot of things that COVID has impacted so the few in the future of healthcare. Um, what do you think sticks? What do you think is going to be um, something that we yeah. from COVID that will stick into the future? Yeah, I'll name a few things. And actually, digress a second. It's better to be lucky than good in life. <laughs> so, um, I love that. Or, or blessed or whatever. Um, <laughs> I started in Optum in, in the beginning of February, 
yeah. and I was asked, we don't know exactly what businesses you're going to run yet, but can you work on home care in the home mm-hmm. and mental and behavioral health care? Mm-hmm. Then COVID happens. As you can imagine, it's like, well, that worked out well. Like it just like, I think there's a high demand for COVID that. did not work out well, but it created a, a shift. Like if there's a silver yeah. lining to, you know, Oh gosh, how do we care for people in their home? Cause we don't, you know, hospitals are overcrowded, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, mm-hmm. And mental and behavioral care, the need went through the roof, including yeah. how do you deliver it through tele. So um, yeah, it's been an amazing year reflecting back. So we did a majority investment in Able to, a mental and behavioral health company, very soon after that. And we stood up mm-hmm. Optum Behavioral Care. And I think that trend to delivering mental and behavioral care, including yeah. telehealth and virtual means, uh, will continue. Uh, I don't think we'll reset to baseline. Even telehealth virtual overall, I don't think we'll reset to baseline. We'll go Fantastic. back to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like broke through. Like, and mm-hmm. broke through the physician clinical cultural barriers, broke through the regulatory barriers, just, you know, we peeled away the onion. Things I'd worked on at CMS and I'd made, we'd made progress through telehealth yeah. waivers and other things, we'd never just broken through. This allowed us to do that. So that's one. Um, two, I think the home care that we talked about, I think, I don't think we'll go back. I think there'll be more and more care in the home. I think people realize, mm-hmm. you know, we, you know, how do we invest in both in-person and virtual care in the home around physical, mental, and social needs. I think that'll continue. Um, I I actually think value-based care, I wrote about this one time. I think the value-based care, if you think about it, COVID also shows that providers who had shifted to population-based payment models did significantly better than those that were in a fee-for-service environment. So I actually think it shows that value-based care and population models actually can build resiliency for, mm-hmm. you know, we may not have another COVID-like event, but for events yeah. um, like this. So I think it actually makes the case to invest in value-based care. Um, you know, the one federal thing that, mm-hmm. unfortunately, we weren't as prepared as we needed to be, despite knowing this event would occur at some point, we weren't as prepared at a federal yeah. and state level didn't execute as well as we could from a pandemic preparedness standpoint so i hope we're better prepared the next time because we may not have this exact event again but it is known that these events occur with some frequency and you need preparation including in nursing homes i wrote rules around emergency preparedness for nursing homes nursing homes Um, yeah so so i think we've still got some work to do there so public health infrastructure public health infrastructure investment yeah no those are all really really insightful and thank you so much you know patrick this has been just Thank you. Us, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to to discuss this with us. And um, just Actually, sorry, I'll, I want to end on one positive thing about you and Nava Health. So, well, um, you. you know, in in May, with the Nava Health becoming, you know, us getting to work together, part of the family, if That's you will. Right. Mm-hmm. I was so personally excited. Like I had worked with Nava Health, obviously, in North Carolina at CMS, so so knew. Yep. Uh, the team and the work you've done, but I was super excited to work more closely together. And the last, you know, uh, the last a little less than a year has made me even more excited. Uh, yeah. Just an amazing team delivering terrific results, partnering with people, fires and providers across the country. And I just think the work you do has been 
uh, so impressive in terms of driving innovation, better care for patients, better quality, better experience, lower total cost of care, all the things we talked about today. So on a personal level, it's a pleasure to work with you, Jay, uh, and Clay and the team, yeah. and uh, look forward to what we do together in 2021, working with you know, hospitals, doctors, nursing homes, people across the country. And I'll just say this, we couldn't be more excited to be part of Care Solutions and to work across the aisle with a whole bunch of fabulous, really fabulous, talented people. Um, so, and, and sincerely appreciate your leadership. Um, as, so thank you so much again, Patrick, for, for joining us. Uh, this has been just fabulous. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot.